Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. Hello, superhumans. I am truly excited for today's episode as its core message is near and dear to my heart to help humanity heal the dis-ease and disconnection so many of us are feeling and to reconnect to our birthright of wholeness and radiant health and well-being. I am so honored you're spending time with me today, and I hope this episode will instill as much hope and happiness in your heart as it has in mine. Many of us believe that the culture we live in mirrors innate human nature, but today's dominant cultures of competitive, destructive detachment are rare and recent. Nearly every other culture that has ever existed during our species history over millions of years has been one of connected cooperative companionship. We evolved in cooperative bands of kin and non-kin, where we were nurtured and welcomed by all members of the community. We lived together, we gathered food together, we sang together, and we danced together. We knew it would have been impossible to survive on our own, but together we thrived. Today, we're living in a culture that goes against everything it means to be human. Our culture emphasizes toughness over tenderness, isolation instead of togetherness, even for babies. As a result, we are depressed, anxious, chronically ill, and at the bottom of every international indicator for health. We are stuck in a cycle of competitive detachment where we feel disconnected from others and even ourselves, while at the same time feeling we have to compete for anything worthwhile. There is a way not only to break the cycle, but to create a new cycle, one that reclaims our humanity and helps us heal ourselves and our culture. We can create a cycle of connected, cooperative companionship. To heal ourselves and our world, we simply have to return to this way of nurturing children and communities. And today's guest teaches how to restore these cycles of connected, cooperative companionship. Darsha Narvaez is a professor of psychology emerita at the University of Notre Dame, who has written extensively on issues of character, moral development, and human flourishing, and whose work encompasses the neurology of moral development, as well as the study of evolved parenting practices. Narvaez is a fellow of the American Psychological Association, the American Educational Research Association, and the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Amongst others, she is the author of the books Neurobiology and the Development of Human Morality and Restoring the Kinship Worldview, Indigenous Voices Introduce 28 Precepts for Rebalancing Life on Planet Earth. She's also the founder of EvolvedNest.org, an online platform dedicated to restore human nature to its cooperative orientation, its original and normal human heritage. summer and I have passionately dedicated the last 12 years of my life to creating the ultimate human experience mentally, physically and spiritually based on the most powerful ancient teachings and cutting edge modern discoveries and technologies. The Superhumanized Podcast is a show committed to sharing what I have learned from the world's leading experts in order to help you achieve your full potential and create your best life ever. 
Dr. Darsha, welcome to the Superhumanized podcast. What a pleasure to connect with you today. I'm happy to be here. So good to be with you. Something when I was researching you and your extensive body of work and also your life, something that's really fascinated me and resonated with me is that you're actually in, I think it's your seventh career. You have done so many eclectic things in your life. You've been a musician, you've been a classroom teacher, a business owner, a human resource developer, amongst other. And you are a professor of psychology emerita at the University of Notre Dame. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey? And it sounds like you've been a seeker and an explorer all your life. I'd love to know a little bit more about that. Thanks for the question. It is complicated. I probably count it my, as my eighth career now, trying to write trade books for people. So I have one out and one in the publisher's hands now. So I spent half my childhood in Spanish-speaking countries outside the U.S. and then the other half mostly in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. And I was struck at an early age by the injustice of the world seeing kids my age on street corners selling gum they're in rags barefoot trying to make money for to eat and then coming back to the united states every after a year abroad and seeing the overabundance the materialism and wastefulness and i couldn't understand what was wrong with the world it took me a few careers to get back to that <laughs> question my phd was in moral development and so i wanted to know what's gone wrong. The, in between, I had a lot of other interests, music and teaching and travel and such. So I did various other things, always looking for the golden thread of truth wherever mm. I went. And I think now I'm able to find multiple threads and pull them together in mm. what the work I do with Evolve Nest. Yes, beautiful. And I want to take a deep dive into Evolve Nest with you. And I would like to open up this conversation and this deep dive into your life's mission with the following. I have had many times over the course of my life conversations about the human condition, the trials humanity has been going through in the past, as well as the present. And like yourself, ever since I was a little girl, this injustice that seems to permeate every aspect of life, physical, psychological, and different parts of the world has always really struck a chord within me. And whenever I sought conversations about it, especially as a child with adults, I've heard, oh, it's always been like this. This is just the way it is, especially when you talk to older generations and this pessimism and fatalism that is at the core of how many people see the human essence. That's always rubbed me wrong. I've always, I couldn't just accept this. And what you have been unveiling and illuminating via your work is that actually also via social sciences, we know that we have not always been like we are today. You know, what we see when we look at the greed, the isolationism, aggression, selfishness, and all that. Can you tell us about a little bit about the history of humanity? And also, I'm curious in your mind, what has gone wrong? What is the reason that we've lost this 
uh, human essence, how we actually really are? Excellent question. A deep question. It could take a few days to answer, but I'll make it short. In essence, we have fallen off the wellness informed pathway that evolution set up for our species and for every species. And we have entered a trauma inducing pathway and we've then become so used to it. We think it's normal. Now this happened perhaps gradually in some ways with the establishment of civilization of nation states. 5,000 years ago, people debate how long ago that happened, Sumer for, for sure. And in that shifting to being settled and being in one place was unusual for our species. We spent 99% of our species as nomadic foragers, migratory, following the food sources, few possessions, fiercely egalitarian. That's what we see in these kinds of societies today that have been studied over the last few hundred years. And they live in a sustainable way. They don't uh, ruin the whole place and eat all the animals and plants where they are. No, they know they're coming back. And so they, they move in a respectful, sustainable way. And when something happened uh, five, 10,000 years ago, people debate when exactly, but there are communities around the world started to just get stay in one place. And they started to then cultivate plants, domesticate animals. And this started then the pathway to inequality, the vast inequality we have now, which wouldn't have been tolerated in our ancestral past. Some people had accumulated more animals, more food, more. And then they started to then create hierarchy. And then the privileged get the majority of the wealth. But at the same time, what's going on is the evolved nest that the nestedness, the support system for the youth, the young, and for everybody actually, but especially important in babyhood, started to deg get degraded because most people had to go work, were slaves or were forced into it somehow. And so the neglect essentially of babies started, less breastfeeding, less caring, less touch, less responsive care. And that affected brain development. So that we know we're, we're fetuses until about 18 months of age, at least. We're like fetuses of other animals. So much is growing from the experiences, the epigenetic effects in early life, that the, the, any kind of absence of maternal presence, of caregiver presence and responsiveness during that time period, especially, but also in the first years of life, is going to affect how well that brain develops how intelligence is, social intelligence, all self-control, all sorts of things are affected. And so we've then put it on an accelerated role of deg degrading the nest in the last 500 years, and then even more acceleration in the last 100 years, perhaps. Yeah. And now we're here, and the U.S. is the worst case scenario <laughs> of how or the exemplar of how to neglect children <laughs> and how to create a society that's disordered and distressed. Thank you for that explanation, Dr. Darsha. And what you're just talking about, if we're looking at the U.S., I think the United Nations ranks the U.S. as the 41st out of 41 developed countries for child and adult wellness. And certainly the degradation of the care for infants, for babies, that's hugely influential. You just mentioned that, so especially in the last 500 years and accelerated within the last 100 years, 
all of these negative developments took place. I think something else interesting that would be good to put a focus on is the Western Enlightenment. I think that ties in with what you said, what's been happening the last 500 years. And beginning with the Western Enlightenment in the 17th century, this even stronger alienation from nature and also the belief that there's a unifying force that permeates everything has been flooding our world. Can you tell us a little bit more about the Western Enlightenment view and how it permeates our culture, how it's shaped the world geopolitically and how it influences us individually in our day-to-day lives? Yes, we, my colleague and I, Four Arrows and I have a book that just came out, Restoring the Kinship Worldview, which contrasts the Western worldview with the indigenous, which all of us, all our ancestors just assumed and had by nature until about 500 years ago. It was degraded earlier, but the Enlightenment especially pushed us over the edge Mm -hmm. into divorcing ourselves from our bodies, from nature, from relational connection, and pushing us into this intellect, the thinking mind, the really ego consciousness, the left brain, thinks it knows everything, from all the studies you can do where you numb one side of the brain or the other, the left brain always thinks, oh yeah, I know what happened. Even though they don't know, have any idea what happened, they make up stories and they rationalize, it, it rationalizes. The right hemisphere is who we are really, our intuition, our subconscious, our reactions, our all instincts, all kind of different systems there. And that's very much shaped in early life in those early months and years. And we undermine that. And so you end up with a kind of empty intuition, empty heart, empty middleness, empty human. And you send kids to school to do get the intellect going. And mm-hmm. so that's what we've emphasized in the Western worldview. What we've undermined then is the normal way to raise a human being or any animal is to honor its basic needs provide what's needed for it, the young to flourish. And the basic needs are many. We have animal needs and shelter and warmth, protection. And somehow in the United States, we think that's all you need. No, we're mammals. We're social mammals. We need affection and play and mind melding with lots of different people. And we need a lot of role modeling of how to behave. And then we just learn how to behave. You don't have to teach a child by talking to them and telling them things. They'll follow what you're doing and want to be a good community member. And we forgot all that kind of stuff. We get caught up in this reasoning is first. Reading is more important than being. So that's all left brain stuff. It's been, as Ian McGilchrist says in his uh, Master and His Emissary book and other writings, it's created a Western culture that's very destructive. Here we are. Now, the alternative, the indigenous perspective is one of honoring life of building, when you let children, babies guide you with what they need and honor their needs by keeping them optimally aroused, happy, contented, which means lots of caring and interaction that's fun and playful, you build this sense of connection and receptive intelligence, I call it, to the natural world, to picking up on the signals of the natural world and being a member of the earth community, feeling here and now that I'm rooted, that I am, this is my place. I am a member of this bio community and so are the animals and the plants and the river and the mountain. And we're all in this together. 
that's the indigenous perspective. And it's a virtuous perspective. It's honoring one to the other because you build those social, emotional, intellectual intelligence capacities to get along. You isolate a baby, leave them alone a lot, leave them to cry, keep them in a carrier or playpen, somehow divorced from touch. You are undermining that normal kind of multiplex of capacities to get along and to sense and be here and now in your body, knowing personal understanding of how to live a good life. Mm, Yes. And feeling safe and feeling connected. And this knowing, this philosophy, this lifestyle where everything in your life is permeated by the knowing that everything is connected, such as in the indigenous worldview, or if you look at Chinese Taoism, where we're off this world, or if you look at now the discoveries made by quantum science, all of this ties together, whether it's ancient teachings and ways of living, or even the most cutting edge science now that is telling us this is actually the deepest truth of our existence and part of this world. I would love to talk about how we can break the cycle of dis-ease. And I would love to learn more about what you've already mentioned and what you have, you're offering your mission in the world, the evolved nest. Can you please tell us about that, Dr. Darsha? Certainly, yes. And we have a little movie called Breaking the Cycle Film. If you go to that website, there's a six minute film that Mm -hmm. talks about the cycle of cooperative companionship, which is our heritage. And every animal has a heritage like this. We just decided no, or we didn't decide so much as we got pushed over into a cycle of competitive detachment. And that's where we are. Mm -hmm. So how does how do these cycles start? It starts in early life, Mm -hmm. providing companionship, care, meeting basic needs, essentially. Mm -hmm. And so I'll go through the evolved nest. We've identified nine components in the nest and neuroscience backs all of them up now, which our ancestors knew these things instinctively. They didn't have the neuroscience experiments for it, but they thrived in these, in this kind of companionship nested community. So number one is soothing perinatal experiences. So that's a gestational experience for the baby that's calming, that the mother feels supported. So her biochemistry for that baby is a positive one for positive growth. If she feels socially stressed, that's going to convey a different kind of biochemistry to the baby. So really the nest is for mom and baby. So the nest is not the mother's responsibility alone. We tend to do that. And then we undermine mothering in so many ways, nurturing. But the nest is a community provision. So it's supporting mother and baby during pregnancy. Birth is soothing, not traumatic for either mother or child. There's no separation of them. You're avoiding drugs. There are always emergencies. You have to do things in emergencies. But routinely, there shouldn't be drugs, and you should follow the timing of the baby. The baby stays in the womb at a different length of time. It's not You can't predict it, really. We don't know how to anyway. They vary by 55 days, how long they want to stay in the womb. So you want to follow the instincts and the triggers of the baby for when to get born, not schedule it according to some due date, which is a guess because of the variability. And then after birth, so no traumatic experiences, no circumcision, which has long-term physical and psychological effects. 
no vaccinations and things that traumatize the baby, you're imprinting the brain for heaven's sakes. You don't want to do that. So everything should be soothing and mom and baby should be skin to skin immediately. And the baby should be allowed to crawl up to the mother's breast. And their instinct is to massage the nipple and get the all the hormones going so that breast milk, which is colostrum to begin with, is flowing and the baby then and mom, the reward systems are ready to just glom onto each other in those moments. And if you interfere with it, it's like interfering lovemaking. Uh, in the middle, you stop and say, okay. And then you come back later. All right, start right where you stopped. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. Reward systems are ready because they build up right in hormones and everything. So you want to honor the mom and baby connection. Of course, their moms and babies who are separated can bond too. It's just that we want to honor and provide the supports for optimal development so that all the, the, the gifts that child has are going to be reached to their fullest potential. And we do so many things to just log down the poor child in so many ways when we don't provide the nest. Anyway, so that's number one. <laughs> number two is breastfeeding. Now, breastfeeding, I know it's been difficult for some mothers and maybe some intergenerational things going on and their interferences with the with medical procedures can interfere. And the WHO, World Health Organization, has a baby-friendly hospital initiative because they are concerned about low breastfeeding rates, which are still very low, even in advanced nations. They established these 10 procedures to support breastfeeding, essentially. And one of them is immediate skin-to-skin contact. No, don't give the babies sugar water, which hospitals did routinely to keep them quiet, or infant formula, which of course then populates the gut, both of those with bad bacteria, essentially unhealthy bacteria compared to breast milk. And anyway, so breastfeeding is this magical elixir. The mother's body is just a fantastic science laboratory, creating milk for that child, whatever is needed at that time, depending on the sex of the child, the growth rate, the time of day. The milk is different. If there's an infectious agent in the region, there's an antibody that breast milk provides. And over the years, it takes several years to develop the immune system and the breast milk is populating the gut where 90% of the immune system exists and providing food for the probiotic bacteria, the healthy bacteria. And it takes maybe five, six years to reach adult levels for that immune system. So our heritage is to breastfeed for at least four years, probably six would be the best This doesn't mean full-time breastfeeding. It just means every now and then there's breast milk provided to that child every day, maybe night milk or something. I know everyone's going, what? that's too much. (laughs) It's hard to establish that baseline in the way we've shifted down and lowered our standards in so many ways and minimize the needs of babies. And this is one of those areas too. Of course, moms need lots of support here again need to see how it works and be immersed in a community where everyone's breastfeeding. And so you can see what the challenges are, how to deal with them and get all the wise elders helping you when you're a first time mom and all that. And again, we don't have that. Uh, Third one. So that's soothing birth, perinatal experiences, breastfeeding for several years, at least two and a half years is linked to being, having a peaceful society, carrying a child around a lot and breastfeeding for two and a half years explains 80% of the variance in how many of peaceful societies around the world in the database that the anthropologists have. 
Third is a welcoming social climate. That means mom and baby are welcomed. Yes, the baby's wanted. The mother is supported. And the baby feels like they belong, like they can have a, a relationships with multiple people. And they generate smiles and laughter. And, and it's, they enhance one another's well-being. And the child learns to do that, too, within this very nested community. Fourth is self-directed. Let me do this one first. Affectionate touch. So we are social mammals, we need lots of touch, especially in early life. It helps establish all sorts of systems, helps us learn to breathe. The baby has to learn to breathe outside the womb. They didn't have to breathe with lungs inside the womb. They have to learn this and it's hard and some babies don't learn it. Some babies die from not learning it. Some just keep shallow breathing throughout their life and then they have trouble with respiratory issues later because they don't breathe deeply. And so there are many systems that are helped by being carried a lot and skin to skin is best. And the, it helps digestion, the movement and the carrying, right? It helps the intestinal cilia get stimulated by the movement. And the vagus nerve, one of the major nerves of the body, the 10th cranial nerve innervates all the major systems in the body. It's getting established in early life. If it's not established well, you can have trouble with digestion, irritable bowel, with asthma, with heart problems, seizures in the brain, all sorts of things get misaligned or underdeveloped and social capacities. So the vagus nerve has to be functioning well for you to have intimate, be able to have intimate relations comfortably. And so if you don't like to have people touch you, there's probably something going on with the vagus nerve or the oxytocin system, which is another system that's very much about bonding and cuddling. All these things are being established by Usually it's maternal touch, but it's a caregiver touch in early life. Do I keep going? So that's four. Oh, yes, please, absolutely. Okay. So then there's self-directed play and usually social play with multiple age playmates. So self-directed play is not established sports. It's not adult-directed structured activity. It is spontaneous whole body playing. So running around, playing chase, climbing yep. trees, wrestling, all kinds of just creative interactions with others. And ideally with multiple age playmates, because if you're with the same age group all the time, you're going to be more competitive than cooperative because uh, we are oriented to, to teach the young and to be kind and, and model for the young. And the young love to look up to the older and, ma and imitate and learn. Something that's interesting in that context with play is I've always been fascinated how in our culture, the vast majority of games are designated to have a winner and a loser or losers. And we just think, oh, this is the way games are, where if you look at other cultures, there's plenty of games where it's not about one individual takes it all, but it's about a collaboration and everybody gets something out of it. And everybody, so to speak, is a winner. It's the playing itself that's rewarding, the result. So in indigenous communities, that we cite a contest of the Mbuti, uh, the African societies and Mbuti pygmies that Colin Turnbull described, where it's a rope contest where all the men and all the women are on one side versus the other, and they start to pull. And when one side starts winning, then some people from the winning side will go over the other side and, and they pretend to be, usually it's the women that start to lose first, right? Because they don't have the upper body strength as much. 
And the guy will come over and change his outfit so he look, looks more like a woman and starts to full settle and tease the women and, blah, 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 and starts pulling. And then when they start winning, then uh, a woman will go to the other side and, and, and change her outfit to look like a man. And, oh, blah, blah, and tease the men. And then they're back and forth and back and forth. People are moving in. <laughs> and they're, oh, wonderful. Till everyone, <laughs> till everyone just rolls on the ground laughing. <laughs> that's a, that's, that's beautiful. <laughs> You get out your hostility with all the humor. If you have hostility towards the other opposite sex, then yes. just get it out. So these kind of uh, ceremonial, ritual, playful interactions are common in our, and that's our last component, the healing, mm-hmm. gene healing. But so back to play. Yeah, we know play turns on all sorts of genes, helps you control aggression, builds leadership skills, social skills, all sorts of wonderful things. But it has to be self-directed so that you're, you have to learn to stop your aggra- to being too aggressive because your playmate's going to stop. If you don't stop being too aggressive when they give you the signal, it's too much. Mm-hmm. They're going to stop playing with you. So you mm-hmm. have to learn how to be reactive and react to the unexpected because you don't know what the other person's going to do, really. And so it's so good for brain development. And I encourage people who haven't had the nest during early life to go play with a young child because the right hemisphere can grow throughout life. We underdevelop it in early life now in the States, especially, but you can redo it. Yeah. That's, that's amazing, Dr. Darsha. And I think that would be so vital for so many people to know. I have in my close circle of people who I hold very dear, people who have experienced less than ideal childhoods. And that's incredible. So there it's not just hope, it's science that you can nourish this under, under nourished part of you, even into adulthood. Can you tell us a few more examples? So to play with a young child is more, but what else can we do to actually nourish and help develop that right brain hemisphere that might've suffered neglect in childhood? Yes. Whatever keeps you in the present moment, Yes. Uh, where you have to be artistic and creative, for example, dancing, where you are interacting with others. So in my classes, I use folk song games. So things like hunting, we will go, hunting, we will go, we'll catch a little fox and put him in a box and then we'll let him go. And you keep getting a circle bigger as you catch more people. And you have to touch people, you're looking in the eye, you're moving, you have to keep track of the song, and you're laughing, and it's wow, it's, and you're enjoying yourself. We used to teach the college students that, then we'd go teach kindergartners the song mm-hmm. song games and play with them. And they were just, the uh, college students were amazed at how spontaneous the young were. They'd just be jumping up with glee and have all these ideas, and that's where you need to be. In our ancestral context, nomadic foraging communities are very playful. They're playing all throughout the day. It's, there's no work. Yeah. Uh, and they then have routine ceremonies as well where it's fun and interactive and communal. And it's completely, it's the polar opposite to this idea and practice, the lifestyle of the nuclear family, which is a pretty recent invention, so to speak, versus the extended family child raising that you're just describing in indigenous societies and also in our ancestors. Can we, and I'd like to go back to the, I think we're at point number five for what's really important for a baby, but maybe a quick interlude, the downsides of this nuclear family versus the extended family child raising. 
Yes, it's very strange and unusual to box people into a small, tiny space with two, with a mother alone with a child. Oh my God, that's insane. And, or even two parents, right? With one child or more children. At least when there's more children, they can play together, but it's crazy. It's not our style. There are animals where the mother alone takes care of the offspring, but our species is one of cooperative child raising. That's Mm -hmm what we evolved. It builds a social, big social brain that we need to get along. That's part of our success as a species. It's group support of mother and child throughout life, really. So yeah, it's very unusual to have this isolation. And even in our nomadic foraging communities, not just kin, it's non-kin also. So it doesn't have to be just family members. Yes. Uh, Because everybody was quite very communal highly autonomous too. They did, there, no, there's no coercion in these communities, no punishment, no force. You, mm. that's, yeah, I'm leaving, but it could leave. If anybody did that, it was grounds for breaking the relationship. Mm. Even children and parents, not much coercion, unless there's some emergency, the baby's rolling into the fire or something. But otherwise there's a deep sense of respect for the dignity of the individual. And that means animals too that you believe, you understand that each person has their own compass and they're following their compass. It's your duty to stay away, stand back as a parent, provide for all those basic needs, especially in babyhood, then stand back and let them bud and blossom. Oh gosh, I think about juxtapose this with all the things that, and of course, people, parents try to do the best with the tools that they've been given, with the knowledge that they have. So bless all the parents for trying to do the best. And uh, But if I look at, for example, how we often, we try to impose our beliefs, how to live, how to eat, how to pray. We force this on this developing spirit, on this child versus just letting it blossom letting it follow its own inner moral compass and also thinking about what you know this so the nuclear family where you basically have a child or children in this box with one or two parents and again everybody's trying their best with what they've given but let's say the parents have ton of issues that they haven't worked out yet no they're the raising the children and so these poor children only have the parents or one parent to actually look up to orient themselves to get or not get the nurture that they need, the guidance versus having a community of family and also non-kin where they can find the love, where they can find the support and where they're not just relegated to having this one or two people who in a worst case scenario might have a lot of problems of their own that they're then superimposing on the child. And adults vary in how, which age they work best with. So some people are really good with babies. Other people are better with toddlers. Others are better with adolescents. And so you need a variety of people around so that the child can find the person who's most responsive to their developmental stage. And I think, so I want to tie back because I know otherwise some of our audience would be like, oh, wait, but she says there's nine things that we should provide for babies. I think (laughs) we're at number five. I think so. Yes, but yes. I, I forgot something that I should have said on touch. No negative touch is yes. part of the nest also. What is negative touch? Please explain that to us. So negative touch would be slapping, pinching, hitting, spanking. Uh, unfortunately, in the U.S., 50% of parents say they spank their one-year-olds. Oh, my goodness. What does negative touch do? 
it's the equivalent of physical abuse in its long-term effects. So it's going to make the child more aggressive, more self-protective, withdrawn, or, or some combination, and less compliant, less cooperative, less socially capable. Because you've now shifted their attention to me because you spanked me. My attention goes in here. I don't want to get hurt again. Oh, no. So they stop growing in the way of this reaching out and, and relationally attuning to others, except to avoid punishment. That's no way to grow. No. And it's also the experience of the person who is in charge of caring for you, of providing for you, basically guaranteeing your survival. And also the person that is supposed to love you most actually uses their physical advantage to physically dominate you, scare you and hurt you. Yeah. And emotional abuse seems to be the worst of all, which is just ignoring and disrespecting and not helping the child feel like they matter. Mattering is so important to feel like I, I count here. And a lot of us didn't have the deep feelings of feeling dismissed and disregarded. And it seems it's so unjust. It feels so deeply injustice to our way of just being alive. Yes. Dr. Darsha, let's define mattering. What is mattering? It's a sense that someone cares about you. They're concerned about your well-being. They'll do things for you. They attend for a baby. It would be keeping baby optimally aroused because baby has no control. They don't have, they can't control so many things. And the adult is helping their body and brain and mind learn self-control, but they can't do it by themselves. So it's that feeling of constant support. It's, and it varies then by age, what that looks like, but it's having a significant impact on others and having this mutual recognition, mutual interactive way of getting along with the others. And mattering how, when we feel like we matter, when we feel like we're significant to others, how does it affect our well-being when we do have that? Yeah, so it's going to mean that my voice is heard and I'm going to be feel like I'm connected, that I am part of this group, I belong. So it's a deep sense of belonging, which is just critical for a social creature like us. And it's that sense of disconnection. We know from all like the mass shooters, they feel disconnected. Yes. And people who do harm to others. Uh, soldiers are taught to be disconnected from the people they're supposed to kill. You dehumanize them, right? Mm -hmm. So in a way, mattering is about being humanized, being mm -hmm. personified, to be a person with needs and beauty <laughs> and gifts and to be honored for those. So mattering will, the deep feeling of mattering will keep people from harming others. And I've also, when I read some of your work, I have read that you actually also say that mattering, the sense of mattering is a protective factor against self-harm as well. That's right. Yes. We need to, Matt, we're social creatures and we need those relationships to help us honor ourselves, to learn, we learn who we are by how we relate to others. And if our early experience is to not be attended to, then we're going to transfer that to ourselves. So 
I talk about the dangers of sleep training for babies and how that's then seeding disconnection, distrust, self-distrust of the parents, of people in general, of the world. It's like it seeds destructive foundation for life. And so that's, I know that's a difficult issue too, if parents have to work. So we have the wrong incentives and the wrong focus in our lives as adults in this country. There's a great New York Times column that just came out on Sunday. Kreider, Tim Kreider, I think, says the Let's get out of the American scam that work is all that's important, right? Mm-hmm. Other than being and relating and enjoying life. Yeah, uh, it's like busy. That's being a good person or being having a good life. Again, it's that ego consciousness taking over. <laughs> ego consciousness and also rooted in whether we are part of a religious system or not, but some of the religions really put a focus on you have to be productive to be valued. And of course, also when you are being brought up within a religious system and you're being told that from birth, something, something is wrong with you, you'll always try to make up for that in a sense. What you just said also about the sleep training and how detrimental it is. I remember, and my mother shared this with me when I was born. I was born in 1977, so different times. I was born in Bonn, Germany at a hospital. And for the first week of my life, I was actually <clears throat> separated for sleeping from my mother. They put me into a big room with lots of other babies. And my mom told me she remembers that whenever, for example, my father wanted to look at me or she outside of the times when I was given to my mother to breastfeed. So this was all timed, but there was this curtain that would be opened with a noise. And to this day, I have misophonia noises bother me to no end. And my mother remembers she, at some point, she was so upset about this. This was what she was told. This was normal quote at the time, but at some point she got so upset with this. She said, if you don't give me my baby right now, I'm going to walk out of the hospital with my baby. But so I wonder what this, these first days of my life's experience, how they may have influenced me. And I acknowledge I had been dealing with anxiety for most of my life, what I can remember. And I've learned how to work with it and healed a lot of that, but I can't help but wonder how certain things that we think might be minimal. Oh, that one week, the first week of your life, how they might actually have a vast impact on you or sleep training, being separated from your mother, from your parents and your needs not getting tended to. It's really, there are consequences. I think part of the reason we don't think much of it is because we don't know what thriving people look like. We don't know what a joyful, authentic child looks like or an adult. It's not normal to have fearfulness or be selfish or aggressive or your monkey mind keep going and going or being resentful and harsh with others or whatever we see as normal around us. That's abnormal for our species. Our ancestral context, the nestedness, promotes cooperation and joy and a quiet mind and the ability to listen to others and to be generous and to be attentive to the spiritual realm, to be aware of the web of life around you and your impact on it and all sorts of things that we think are romantic or, oh, that's just fantasy. Uh -uh. (laughs) Uh-uh. That's what the left brain ego consciousness is telling you because it still wants to be in charge. It hates death and it doesn't want to die (laughs) to the right hemisphere of consciousness. There's the theory you also wrote about is the theory of the one mind that humans actually share one 
mind. Can you expound on that and share with us how we may actually reconnect with this one mind on a deeper level? Yeah, I recommend nature connection. That's how you get started. Get back to nature connection. Wherever you are, you can earth, lie on the ground for half an hour and look at the sky and look around you and just breathe deeply, learn to breathe deeply. That triggers the vagus nerve too. To be reconnected, we have 28 days of nature connection. We call it ecoattachment.dance, which is a little nudge of things that you can do each day. Pay attention to the clouds today or acknowledge the trees you walk by today, things like that. Based on an experiment we did, a successful experiment with college students a few years ago. So I think that's the place to start. Get back in your body and notice where you are and let your senses be overwhelmed with the beauty of the natural world around you. Even if it's just a blade of grass or your potted plant or a dandelion in the sidewalk, wherever you are, the natural world loves you. You're here because of love through the ancestry. The tree of life has brought you here now to enjoy being here. I love your connectedness with the indigenous worldview. And you have published, I think it's a two or more books also with your colleague, Four Arrows. Just one with him, but we've done some other work. Yes. Oh, no, we did. I'm sorry. One trade book, one edited book for mm -hmm. academic book. Yeah. Yes. And to tie back into the nurturing the baby, what other points are very Four more. It actually, everything I'm talking about in terms of nestedness, we all need it. Apart from the birthing and the breastfeeding, we all need touch. We all need a welcoming social climate. We all need play. We all need the, did I, what was the other one? Touch, play. I think that's it. All right. Then we also need responsive, multiple adult caregivers who are responsive. So that's allo mothers, allo parents, because it's not just a mom thing here, <laughs> the nest. Mm -hmm. It's multiple people, not 200 of them, mm -hmm. but there's some research suggesting three, three people in love with the baby. Mm -hmm. Throughout life, we need mentors. We need people we can, who will guide us at each point of shifting that we go through as adults. And then of course, adolescents. And part of the yellow parenting, I think we ought to include the natural world and the spiritual realm. So adolescents need to go through a vision quest. <clears throat> they need to have some kind of mind-altering experience that helps them connect to the universe so that they get out of themselves and their own narrow interests that they may have and realize that they're part of this whole big dynamic <laughs> living <laughs> universe and they have their own gift, right? What is that gift? So they need vision quests. In some Native American communities, they start sending children out when they're six years old at night to find their spirit guides, to find their ways they're going to have gifts. So there are multiple vision quests, but certainly we need something for adolescents to trans, kind of transition to adulthood. Right. Yeah, we're yeah, missing a lot of it. No. Yeah. We do not have rites of passage anymore. Getting your driver's license or getting drunk for the first time, that's not a rite of passage or sweet 16. These are not, these are, it might be fun or might be good for your life path, but it doesn't have anything to do with a profound rite of passage that has always been part of human growth and development, our ancestors or indigenous cultures. 
And that's where the elders of a community would be the ones guiding and helping the decide if the child or adolescent is ready for the vision quest and making sure they're prepared to go off for three days alone, not eating, for example, whatever it is the community practices were. We need something like that now because the otherwise adolescents are going to be attracted to some ideology that sound that makes them feel more important and superior or like they have a purpose. And those can be very dangerous and harmful, destructive. Yes, especially in the times we're living in where it's so easy to connect with these destructive theories and worldviews online without anybody being able to put it into context for you, especially when you feel isolated and alone in the first place. Yeah. There's three more responsive relationships. So that means in babyhood, it means you have people around you who are keeping you in optimal arousal condition. So content, essentially so that you're growing properly. If you're distressed as a baby, you're going to have, and if, if it goes on for very long, you're going to start to melt brain connections. They'll start to deteriorate because that's what cortisol does mm. over a long period of time. And you're supposed to be growing things, the social skills and everything. And so that's putting the baby in the wrong direction for development. And that means they're more likely to enhance the survival systems that we're born with, fear system, the rage system, the exploration system, the panic systems. These are things that then can overtake your personality and you'll be more oriented to stress or threat reactive in social situations. So in every social situations, we decide subliminally and very quickly whether we feel safe or unsafe. A person with a brain that's been enhanced to be distressed is going to feel threatened by a lot of things. And so When that stress response kicks in, the blood flow shifts away from your higher order thinking and mobilizes you to run, right? Light, fight, or freeze faint. And you need to, it, you, it's helpful to be aware of that, but you're not able to think you're not going to be open-hearted or open-minded when your stress response is kicking in. So how can we help adults who are dealing with this? How can... What are some steps towards healing? We've already talked about before, you mentioned to activate and nourish the brain hemisphere, the play. But so for somebody who's really perpetually in this fight or flight mode, because they may have had very traumatic childhood experiences and young adult experiences, how can we begin the healing process there? Yeah, what I have worked with students on this, it's to learn first to calm yourself. So you have yeah. to pick up some techniques that help you calm Belly breathing is the easiest to learn. There are YouTube videos about it. You have to have the, let your belly really get big and then slowly breathe out. That's tuning up the vagus nerve. Singing and humming also tunes up that vagus nerve. And the vagus nerve is what's going to help you be calm, helps you go to sleep too, and helps all sorts of things. Like I said, it's innervating all the systems of the body. Huh. And the humming is fascinating. Would it also be helpful to somebody who is in stress to be hummed to like your mother would do when you were a child? Yeah, I just saw an article that just came out in science about the very soft kind of sound is very nurturing or calming. Mm. To, this is a mouse study. But we know that moms, not only human moms, but dolphins sing to their young And there are ways to do that nice low level singing. The voice of mother is so calming. Yes. 
So if you have to be away from your child, I would make a recording of your voice <laughs> for that child, even an older child, a very calming, sing to them, have a special song that you've started when the, when you, during pregnancy that you sing to the child will remember it. They start to be able to hear it about seven months, apparently. And so that song will be theirs, the Mbuti, each mother sings, makes up a special song for the particular child. And then everyone sings that to the child later on after they're born. There's so many things to do with singing and, and humming and then resonating, right? We want to, we resonate with the people around us. We are bodies of energy. So that loving resonance that's coming at us helps us resonate back. So that's that intersubjectivity, limbic resonance between brains, heart resonance, heart mind Institute talks about that. So we have a lot of capacities to do that. So if you're alone, humming, belly breathing, but if you're with someone else, the folk song games, the singing together, the praying together, the chanting together, those are things we always want to encourage social experiences so that the right brain grows even more than if you're alone. Wonderful. Thank you for that, Dr. Darsha. Okay, two more. Nature connection. So nature immersion, very important for young children, be able to be free, running around in a natural environment, not just a grassy lawn, but the forest. Animals, young animals are smart. They're not going to hurt themselves. And if we let the child run around too, they're not going to hurt themselves. They have an internal sense of things. But once we start to interfere, oh, that's dangerous. Don't do that. Then you start to undermine their self-confidence. And then they're more, more likely to have an accident because you've undermined their, you've made them second guess their instincts, which is, so we have to be careful with that. So nature immersion, and then is going to build nature connection. So to let the child have a space to know this place, to explore wherever they are on the earth and to know it as a partner, to know this tree and to love this tree and these plants and these animals and care for the, this river or this stream or creek, whatever it is. So that's really part of being a human being. We're not humans apart from the earth. We are earth creatures. And we kind of I, I love that. I mean, it's been such a big part of my life too. I have an oak tree here. I, every morning I go and hug and kiss my oak tree. I speak oh, to it and certain <laughs> birds that always come visit every day. And it's just, it's a, such a beautiful thing. Yeah. Yes. Part of your community. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Then the last one is the routine healing practices. And this is, we, unlike other animals, we appear to be the only ones that make conscious decisions, make choices and make a lot of bad decisions and choices and actions that harm others. So we need to heal our relationships are with people, with the natural world, even ourselves, we get into self-doubt or illness, things just get unbalanced. And so the routine healing practices are to restore balance in all these areas. Yeah. Can you give us an example of a routine huh? healing practice? In the San Bushmen of Africa, they are, they have our ancestral genes. So they've been around for 200,000 years or so. And all our genes go back to them. <laughs> so they're our ancestors. And they have routine all night dancing. <laughs> and uh, this, what they call boiling energy, this nom that comes up from their dancing and drumming. And they have certain, some people are more healers than others, and they will lay hands on somebody. In general, these practices would be a lot of physical movements of dancing, drumming, singing, and that kind of chanting. 
these are things because our bodies are part of us. They're not separate. Our heads and <laughs> minds, bodies, all integrated. And with the spiritual, our psyches and our spiritual aspects, all the great mystery, all this is a great mystery of all interacts. And, but we know that being back in our bodies in a healthy way, in a communal way, right, with others. So we feel like we can let go of resentments because we just danced together. We just sang together. We can let go of any kind of self-doubt we have because we're with the group and we're here together and they love me and I love them. And so it's a kind of this very creative force that just bubbles over. So we need to have those kinds of experiences. And I think folk song or folk dancing used to provide this for societies all over the world and the local music. You can see it in some of the travel shows where they have little choirs or little bands and people dance. And there's just something about being together in our bodies with music. Mm. That's fascinating, Dr. Darsha. And on so many levels, also, if you think about somatic healing or look at animals, then many of them have the capacity. I, I think about my little dog, he just shakes himself when he's stressed and then the stress is gone. So moving this stuck energy through your body and just letting it out physically and also psychologically. So that also ties into the dancing. You just, you, it causes a state change. So if you might be sad, angry or, or just stressed. So it causes a state change to just move your body. And then of course, the powerful experience of doing that in community and in connection and feeling safe and held. That makes so much sense. Why did we stop doing that? <laughs> well, that's some, that has to do with the Protestant Reformation. They wanted people to stop having so much fun and being so emotive <laughs> in public. So they kind of shut down all the festivals that used to happen. <laughs> oh my God. And we think that the influence of the Taliban is bad. We just need to look back <laughs> at our recent history, the stuff that we've done that still influences us to today. We can all put the radio on and dance or our favorite songs and stuff and just dance out whatever we're feeling. And that, mm. that will help even if we can't be with a group. Absolutely. And so these were the nine things that yeah, are- I'll really go through it again. So it's- Soothing perinatal experience, breastfeeding for several years, welcoming social climate, affectionate touch and no negative touch, mm -hmm. self-directed free play, allo parents or allo mothers, so mentors, mm -hmm. responsive relationships, nature immersion and connection, and routine healing practices. Wonderful. Thank you so much for this, Dr. Darsha. These are some profound ways in which we can restore homeostasis and just build a healthier global society. So many beautiful practices in there to and profound and necessary practices to just bring in to what it means to be a human being and raising human beings again. As far as life practices go for yourself, I always love to ask my guests if they're willing to share a practice that has enhanced their life physically, mentally, and or spiritually. Is there something you could share with us, Dr. Darsha? Yes, I can do that. And can I say something first? Certainly. And that is the cycle of cooperative companionship starts with the nestedness, which mm -hmm. then fosters a psychosocial psychobiological well-being, which leads to adults who are well and wise, 
then keep the cycle going by keeping the basic needs met for the whole community. And they become then heart-centered. They become, because they've developed their right hemisphere and their social connection and the sense of oneness, they maintain the heart-centeredness and that, and they're thriving essentially. And that leads to a society or community that lives sustainably on the earth, that lives with respect and responsibility towards the, the local landscape, but also towards the whole planet because they have more capacities. They're able to see and sense things beyond where they are, which we've forgotten how to do that or neglected it. Then I, in terms of my own practices, I have spirit animals in all four directions. And so I honor them each day, usually with a song greeting <clears throat> or other kinds of dance or something. And I have a song that our land that we live on gave to me. And I sing to it when I'm outside. And, and my husband and I are silly and play during the day when we're together. And our biggest goal is to try to make the other belly laugh. <laughs> I love it. Oh, that is so beautiful. What wonderful practices. Thank you for sharing these, Dr. Darsha. I'm particularly intrigued by the one you mentioned with the, it's, so it's four spirit animals because one for each direction. How did you actually find these and connect with these? This is a more intricate ritual and also wisdom basis or yeah. Can you give us a quick overview of that? I think the first one was every time I see a firefly, I gasp. <gasps> it's the first one of the season or the, of the evening. It's like, ah, <laughs> it just grabs my heart. Yeah. And so that was an awareness. I have a connection there. And then the others came in visions or intuitions about which animals I feel passionate about who speak to me. And then over time, what gifts they're giving me. Yes. Uh, and so the firefly is insight, the wisdom of the West, which for me would mean the Asia, yes. <laughs> uh, that wisdom, <clears throat> the Eastern is the wolf. I just passionate about wolves and that's the fierceness, which is part of my, <laughs> my, me, <laughs> and that is drivenness to, to support life. And then the south is frog and the goddess Atabue. I'm, I have Puerto Rican blood. Uh -huh. Atabue is the Puerto Rican goddess uh -huh. who looks somewhat like a frog. Uh -huh. The voice in the water. So there's an element each two to each direction. And it's love. It's about love. Mm -hmm. And then the north is the bear. I see the bear in the background. I yes, you have some that's the north. <laughs> you have some beautiful bear images and a stuffed bear. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wonderful. Thank you for sharing that, Dr. Darsha. I appreciate it so much. For people who want to learn more about you and connect, where can they do so? EvolvedNest.org is the place for information about the Evolved Nest. There's also DarshaNarvais.com. And I have a university website with lots of papers you can download if you're oriented to that. And of course, your books. Oh, yes, the books. <laughs> yes, and the recent one is Restoring the Kinship Worldview. Fantastic. And all the profits go to Native American communities. 
Dr. Darsha, I am so grateful for this nourishing and insightful conversation. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom, your body of work with us. Thank you for everything you do. This was a profound pleasure. Thank you. It was really an honor to be with you. And I wish the best and blessings on everyone. Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution.